This is an ABC podcast. Long, long ago, when I lived in a cave, dinner was an unpredictable event. Sometimes we had wild pig that was roasted on the fire. It lasted a few days and we were jolly. Sometimes there was fruit. It didn't last long and we scoffed as much as we could collect, often straight off the bush. Other times there was nothing, or nearly nothing. My fellow cave people became grim, but applied their huge experience to find what they could, and we got by. It was called feast or famine. At least it is nowadays when feast is constant and temptation without end. I sometimes miss those days in the cave 50,000 years ago, for which my body and yours is so finely designed. Professor Louise Bauer from Westmead and Sydney University knows what you and I are up against. Here she is speaking at the Occam's Razor live event in Perth. Picture this. I'm a physician. It's a Monday morning and I'm doing my regular clinic. The consultation with my first patient is just ending. We've discussed management of his prediabetes and obesity. He has a body mass index of BMI of almost 35, which is high. I review the healthy lifestyle changes that have been made. There's been a really encouraging reduction in weight and in waist circumference since I last saw him. I emphasise the importance of really ongoing support from the dietitian and clinical psychologist who are part of our clinic team. I also adjust the dose of his drug metformin and we discuss follow-up arrangements. I then see the next patient who is new to the clinic. She has more severe obesity. Her BMI is 44. She's been referred from a sleep physician and has recently commenced treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. Now she's on a special CPAP machine at night which keeps her airway open while she's sleeping. That treatment, at least, is working well. I check the blood test results and realise she has prediabetes. Her blood cholesterol and triglycerides are high and she also has what looks like fatty liver disease. Her blood pressure is also high. My mind thinks through various options. Management is going to be a challenge. What treatments should I broach first? Now, you're probably thinking that these are fairly typical stories of people suffering obesity-related chronic disease in Australia. But what if I tell you that the clinic is in a children's hospital? and that I'm a paediatrician, and that both patients are only aged 11, neither yet at high school. You would be rightly shocked. We don't expect school children to have such problems, to have prediabetes, nor do we expect them to have to be on a CPAP machine at night in order to be able to breathe while they sleep. And yet clinicians are seeing such patients in paediatric clinics and hospitals around Australia each week. In Australia, about 2% of children and adolescents aged between 5 to 15 years or 60,000 individuals have severe obesity, the level that can give you the sorts of obesity-associated complications that my patients have. At least another 5% in this age group, that's 150,000 or more school children, have more moderate levels of obesity. Their complications of obesity are milder, although the majority will have at least one or more silent risk factors for heart disease or diabetes, which they will carry with them through into young adulthood. 
So what is driving this emergence of increasing numbers of children and young people with varying severities of obesity as well as overweight? It's way too simplistic to say that people are just eating too much and not exercising enough. Of course, the basic energy balance must still remain. For body weight to be stable, energy in through the food and drinks we consume must equal energy out, which is contributed to by our levels of physical activity. Now, we know there's a very strong genetic predisposition to excess weight gain, one of the reasons it runs in families. The more predisposing genes you have, the more likely you are to gain weight. Prior to the late 20th century, these genes were probably very helpful in ensuring that individuals stored body fuel efficiently and were highly economical in expending energy. Our ancient genes are oriented towards defending body fat stores and were a huge benefit in times of lack of food, but expose those genes to 21st century Australia and weight gain almost inevitably follows. Now, over the past few decades, our genes have not changed, but there have been dramatic changes in the environment in which we live. For many of us, obesity occurs when we respond physiologically to what essentially has become a pathological environment. So let's reflect on that environment. What has changed over the past few decades in the ways in which we eat, move and live our lives that might put us, and especially our children and young people, at risk of excess weight gain? Think of the changing food environment in that time period. We have seen the rise of fast food restaurants, once a novelty, now ubiquitous, seemingly impervious to economic recession. Or soft drink consumption, which is likewise much more common. Now you can purchase soft drinks day or night anywhere that a vending machine can conceivably be located. And the serve sizes of the foods and drinks we purchase have changed. One of something, whether it be a packet of potato crisps, a bottle of cola drink, a hamburger, a serve of hot chips is bigger in size now than it used to be. And the way in which junk food is marketed to children, young people, adults has become more sophisticated and more pervasive. It's no longer just ads on TV or radio, but also text messaging, social media ads targeting adolescents, sponsorship of junior sports programs, branded toys and games, in-school promotions and advergaming on the internet. We've also seen the rise and rise of screen time and sedentary pursuits. Personal computers, laptops, video games and smartphones are now central to the way in which children and we adults live and play. The world now comes to children rather than children going out into the world. As a result, Sitting time for children and young people has increased dramatically. Our physical activity environment has likewise changed. Our road networks have grown and grown with a rise in motorised transport and a loss of pedestrian-friendly spaces. Parents are increasingly concerned about pedestrian safety and stranger danger, and this has contributed to fewer children walking or cycling to school. Instead, more and more children are driven to school by parents concerned about the large numbers of parents driving their children to school. In many urban areas, there has been a loss of walkable and safe local areas of green space, recreation space, 
cycle paths and backyards. Children used to have more places to move and play freely with their friends and now these precious spaces are disappearing in parts of our country. And I could go on. There are multiple interconnected factors contributing to the development of obesity in children just as in adults. There is no one single cause and effect. Rather, we are looking at a systems problem where genetics, biology, individual behaviours, social networks, large-scale environmental factors and a range of societal forces all play a role. So in tackling a system-wide problem, you need to work across traditional discipline boundaries, collaborating with multidisciplinary teams and learning from people from a range of backgrounds and communities. Now, I've told you I'm a paediatrician and my true comfort zone is treating diseases in children. But I now find that in order to really tackle the complex issue of obesity, I am working with mathematicians who use big data and dynamic simulation modelling to work out what is likely to be the best combination of interventions to tackle obesity in young people, where those interventions should be targeted and what their likely effect will be over the life course. I work with anthropologists in order to better understand how parents and carers of young children view food and the priority for children's health in different countries. I work with social network modellers who map the ways in which people in different communities can be influenced by their local food environment or local built environment. I work with economists who figure out what the costs of obesity in young people are to the community both now and some decades ahead in the future. And I work with philosophers who help us reflect on how to make changes that are ethical and won't stigmatise people already affected by obesity. Now, this type of collaborative cross-disciplinary approach is vital in order to tackle such a complex problem as obesity. People with a more narrow health background, such as myself, will never solve it on our own. Rather, the knowledge and skills of people from diverse backgrounds and from many different (laughs) communities are needed if we are going to address it in a way that truly brings change. Now, this approach has to work. If we as a community refuse to tackle the problem of obesity seriously in inventive ways, then I and my clinical colleagues will continue to see children in primary school with adult-type chronic disease. Young people will continue to enter adulthood with established risk factors for heart disease and diabetes. More pregnancies will be complicated by obesity and gestational diabetes, and increasing numbers of adults will suffer too early in their lives from preventable diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, sleep apnea, and other obesity-associated complications. That's a future we don't have to have. The choice is ours. Professor Louise Bauer is Head of Child and Adolescent Health at Westmead Children's Hospital and the University of Sydney. She was speaking at the Occam's Razor event in Perth. And talking about choices, I'm reminded of the experiments of Dr. Karen O'Day, now at the University of South Australia. She was looking after a group of urban indigenous people in WA, all of whom had symptoms of diabetes and much else. She took them to the bush and other Aboriginal people who lived traditionally. The townies went out with the others to gather food being taught old customs with plenty of exercise necessarily and no junk eating. Within just a few weeks, their symptoms had disappeared. 
Dr O'Day has repeated such trials around Australia. As Professor Bauer said, we have choices, some without even going to the bush. I'm Robin Williams. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.